Hello and welcome to a special episode of Bad Gaze, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm a writer, and I'm joined today by David Eichert, a PhD candidate at LSE. Uh, regular listeners to the show will know that we normally steer clear of the sort of true crime genre, um, you know, people who are known for their crimes alone. Um, but today we, we're deviating from that a little bit uh, to discuss the life of Arthur Gary Bishop, and hopefully the reasons for that will become clear over the course of the episode. Um, so with that, I will now pass over to David. Cool. Great. Hi. Thanks. Um, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about uh, the very troubled life of Arthur Gary Bishop. Um, this is a relevant topic to me. Uh, I am a gay Mormon, um, and Arthur Gary Bishop is perhaps maybe the baddest gay Mormon. Um, he's a child rapist and murderer who killed five boys uh, between 1979 and 1983. Um, before starting, obviously, a few disclaimers. I'm going to be talking a lot about pedophilia, child pornography and murder, and also briefly about suicide, gay conversion therapy, and other forms of relig religious homophobia. So big trigger warning for anyone who needs it. Um, also, I'm going to be using the term Mormon here to refer to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which is the biggest, wealthiest, Mitt Romney-est kind of Mormonism. Uh, the term Mormon, Mormon can also be used to describe other smaller branches of Mormonism, including the fundamentalists who still practice polygamy. But here I'm just using it in its most colloquial widespread use. Finally, last disclaimer, and just to clarify, uh, I'm strongly opposed to child sex abuse, murder, and all the crimes committed by Arthur Gary Bishop that we're going to talk about. Um, and I don't want to be misunderstood here as trying to excuse any of his actions or dismiss the very real pain felt by the victim's families. Um, I am going to try and contextualize his actions in the wider societal discourse around pedophilia and homosexuality in 1980s Utah, and that will likely humanize Arthur Gary Bishop to some extent, but I don't want anyone to think that I'm somehow minimizing the horrible things that he did. Obviously, these are very sensitive and emotionally charged issues, so I just wanted to say that at the very beginning, that my goal here is just to talk about the history and not his own culpability or excuse anything. All that said, I want to begin our story about 100 years before Arthur Gary Bishop was born in the dry, dry desert of Utah in the second half of the 1800s. The Mormons, a group of tattered religious refugees, had been repeatedly expelled from their settlements in the Midwestern United States and had finally found the place in what they called Deseret, colonizing a huge swath of land that now includes nine U.S. states, uh, but which originally belonged to a number of Native American groups, including the Shoshone, the Southern Paiute, the Nez Perce, the Goshute, the Navajo, and of course the Utes, from whom the name Utah derives. Now, you can call the Mormon colonizing project a lot of things. It was a dictatorial theocracy. It was a proto-socialist utopia, a white settler colonist fantasy. But for purposes of this discussion, it's most important to highlight the radical and unique gender roles that existed in Mormon society at the end of the 1800s. Obviously, the most infamous Mormon gender practice was polygamy, which has its own very complicated history that I'm not going to get into here. Uh, but also, many gender roles were much less restrictive in Utah than, the East, than in the eastern United States. For example, the first woman ever to legally cast a vote in the United States was from Utah. Similarly, the first female state senator in American history was also a Mormon woman named Martha Hughes Cannon. Cannon was a plural wife, the fourth of six wives, and she became state senator for Utah when she won the 1896 election running as a Democrat and defeating her own husband, who was running in the same election as a Republican. So wow. obviously very, yeah, obviously very tense uh, for the couple. This, that, that was before women had universal suffrage. Correct. Yes. Yeah. 
but they, they, they could still stand for office. In it depended on the state, yeah. So uh, in Utah, in Utah, in the Utah territories, that was it was earlier. Um, yeah. So and also same sex relationships were 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 relatively tolerated in Utah during the 1800s, um, and there's evidence of several prominent same sex couples living together throughout their entire lives. Um, of course. Caveat, American ideas about sexuality in the 19th century were a lot different than today. And throughout the United States, you had people kissing on the lips or sharing a bed for years, and would it would never be interpreted as sexual. Um, similarly, in Salt Lake City in Utah, there were male-only same-sex dances, which were important homosocial, but not necessarily sexual events that were attended by many prominent men who had many wives. Um, so obviously, it's difficult to confirm that people had homosexual or mm. homoromantic feelings, uh, but it certainly wasn't advocated against to the same extent as it is, as it is today. Uh, it's the same case as well for, for gender nonconformance. Uh, for example, uh, in the 1800s, one of the prophet Brigham Young, uh, one of his sons actually toured Utah for years as a drag queen, uh, as an Italian opera diva named Madame Paterini, and had seemingly no public opposition to this. Wow. One of, one of Brigham Young's own sons um, was, a, was a drag queen. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's not something you hear about. Yeah, I wish I wish we had the I wish the video existed because I would love to see what a Mormon Utah rural thought an Italian drag queen would be, <laughs> drag diva. Um that isn't to say, of course, that homosexuality was universally tolerated. Um, in fact, in 1879, uh, one church leader, George Q. Cannon, uh, declared uh, over the pulpit that same-sex sex was wrong and that sodomy was caused by the false tradition of monogamy. In other words, if men were allowed to have multiple wives instead of one, they wouldn't get bored and be tempted to have sex with men on the side. Um, and so that's really where Mormon theorizing on homosexuality began, at least from what we can see from, from historical texts obviously we um can't go really deeply into history of of mormon polygamy here but but am i right in thinking that one of the reasons for mormon polygamy was the uh sort of imbalance ratio between a number of men and women yeah that's accurate um i think that mormon polygamy started slightly before um a lot of the kind of mass violence against mormons mm -hmm. um in the midwest uh where where men were 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 killed um but at the same time so you know it's complicated because it, originally polygamy was just re reserved to leaders and ultimately it was only practiced by a very small minority of the population but um i think it was more than just repopulating the community it was there were a lot of reasons there's a theological basis to it as well as a practical basis yeah and I'm certainly not qualified to talk about the very nuanced uh, world of polygamy. Um, anyway, so Mormon beliefs about gender and sexuality began to change during the 20th century. Um, in 1904, the church officially ended polygamy and began to excommunicate members who continued his practice. This gradual drift towards conservative gender roles continued up through World War II, when the church suddenly had to grapple with the effects of world wartime mobilization on sexual norms. Um, so in response, Mormons uh, joined with other conservative groups to push the idea of the nuclear heterosexual family as a foundation for a happy life and a stable country. And at the same time, Mormons were also learning about this new category of person, the homosexual, that was being established in American popular thought by sexologists, psychologists, and politicians. 
Um, and so this continued during the Cold War. The Mormon Church began to mobilize ag alongside other conservative groups against homosexuals, uh, whom they perceived as threats to the moral sanctity of the American family. Church leaders spoke out against these quote-unquote perverts, um, and members of the church were encouraged to report on each other to local leaders, um, especially at BYU or Brigham Young University, which is the church-owned university in, in Utah. Most notably in 1959, Ernest Wilkinson, who's the president of BYU, launched a massive surveillance program meant to root out homosexuality from the campus. Wilkinson viewed homosexuality as a contagion that was spreading throughout the population, leading him to declare in 1965, we at BYU do not intend to admit to our campus any homosexuals. If any of you have this tendency and have not completely abandoned it, may I suggest you leave the university immediately. And if you will be honest enough to let us know the reason, we will voluntarily refund your tuition. We do not want others on this campus to be contaminated by your presence. Uh, later, BYU presidents would later strengthen uh, their program of anti-gay surveillance. Uh, BYU security officers would sit outside gay bars on the weekend looking for cars with license plates that were registered to BYU students. Campus security planted electronic recording devices on students and paid for fake gay dating ads in a Salt Lake City newspaper, all wow. with the goal of entrapping and expelling student uh, gay students. And then this BYU wasn't, also... This wasn't like a sort of campaign to... Um you know, like you couldn't just be very discreet. You know, it was like they were actively going to root out any tendency whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. And I, it really come to, came down to this idea that homosexuality was a contagion that yeah. was passed by one person perverting another person who would then become a homosexual and become damaged and whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we, to get rid of it, you it was a really strict surveillance program. Um, so there was that. There was also at the time uh, a move towards uh, psychological approaches to curing quote unquote homosexuality. Um, so BYU professors, for example, began experimenting with electroshock and, and vomit therapy uh, as a way to quote unquote cure gay students of their homosexuality. And obviously suffice it to say that that didn't work and also led to lifelong trauma for, for victims of that. Um, so some church leaders also shared this uh, view of homosexuality as being a contagion, but others connected homosexuality to the sin of masturbation, drawing upon Victorian ideas of masturbation as causing mental insanity. Church President Spencer W. Kimball, um, who was president for a fairly long time, uh, was a particularly strong proponent of this, this idea. And in 1969, he published the, published the infamous book, The Miracle of Forgiveness, which was essentially required reading for every church member for decades. In The Miracle of Forgiveness, uh, Spencer W. Kimball described same-sex relationships as, quote, revolting, detestable, ugly, and repugnant, uh, calling it the sin of the ages and placing homosexuality just below murder in the hierarchy of sins. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, so for Kimball, homosexuality was the sin that destroyed ancient civilizations like Rome and threatened to destroy America, which was a particularly threatening idea during the Cold War. He similarly pointed out that homosexuality in the Bible was punishable by death and stated that, quote, regrettably, the law is less severe now. A very charming fellow. <laughs> um, and, and at the same time, Kimball also pushed for this idea of a cure for homosexuality. If a person was obedient to God and his prophets, it would solve all your internal problems. And, and mm. eventually you could be, come to a point when you could be forgiven and marry a woman and live a very happy, hetero life. Uh, 
the 1970s saw a rapid acceleration in church statements against homosexuality. Um, further than that, um, among arguments against the practice was the idea that gay men and women would target and corrupt young children. Pornography, bad parents, and drug abuse were all discussed as causes of homosexuality, and church leaders vehemently rejected any idea that homosexuality was somehow innate or immutable. So it was into this charming social context that Arthur Gary Bishop was born in 1952 in the tiny, tiny, tiny desert town of Hinkley, Utah. He was the fifth of nine children and raised like almost everyone he knew in the Mormon faith. Um, there is some evidence that suggesting that he was sexually abused as a very young boy. Um, that's obviously not clear. One of his brothers has insisted there's no abuse, um, but I just wanted to shove that in there because there are alternative uh, accounts there. Mm -hmm. in, in any case, Bishop was a very sensitive child, a bit of a loner and a nerd. He spoke with a mild speech impediment and was teased for wearing glasses and being overweight. Um, he first became aware of his sexual attraction to boys at age 14 when he became infatuated with a seven-year-old boy at the local swimming hole in town. Uh, later, he would have several sexual experiences with a boy his age, engaging in mutual, mutual masturbation and, and things like that. As a teenager, Bishop was an honor student and, Eagle, and an Eagle Scout, and at age 19, he went to the Philippines to serve a Mormon mission for two years, which is the social expectation for Mormon boys. Um, part of his motivation in serving a mission, um, in addition to the social pressure, was the hope that it would cure his desire for sex with, with boys and men. Um, his sexual problems frightened him, and he was hoping that a mission would provide the cure he needed to become normal, quote-unquote. Unfortunately, upon arriving in the Philippines, he became disturbed by the number of young boys he saw running around naked in the heat, uh, which was radically different from how he was raised in rural Utah. Um, he also had very little access to other books outside the Mormon canon, so any attempt to find an, a, an explanation for his sexuality and Mormon doctrine would just have reinforced the idea that people with homosexual thoughts were dangerous and perverted pedophiles who prey on young children. Um, as the missionary, he began masturbating to thoughts of young boys and then repenting and saying he would never do it again, and then masturbating again later in a very demoralizing cycle. And eventually this led to him attempting suicide by, by swallowing a, a large bottle of aspirin. Um, that a suicide attempt failed, he threw up, um, in the end he stayed the full two years, but the shame around his attraction to men and boys was really uh, tremendously demoralizing for him. Bishop returned to Utah after, after the, being in the Philippines. He went to a business school, became an accountant, and eventually found work at a used car de dealership. He slowly drifted away from being active in the church, in part because he felt he couldn't live up to the standards expected of a return missionary who secretly masturbated and looked at boys. Um, and eventually he stopped attending church altogether, feeling too guilty to go, but instead uh, began to act on his pedophilic attractions. Uh, targeting young cousins or family members or, and unknown children in, in public places. He began stealing money from work, eventually embezzling thousands of dollars and using that money in part to pay boys to pose naked for him in photos. This is when he's in his early 20s still. Yep, exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, Bishop also began around this time, he began a relationship, if you can call it that, uh, with a boy named Eric, who was apparently receptive to Bishop's advances. I wasn't able to find any information about uh, who Eric was, how old he was at the time. So I really don't know if he was 16 or 10 or, or what age range. Um, apparently Bishop increased his embezzlement um, while dating Eric because he was continually giving Eric very lavish gifts. Um, and, but eventually their relationship ended because Eric was, Eric wanted to date other boys and Bishop was jealous. 
1978, um, just a little while later, Bishop was arrested and convicted for embezzlement and given a five-year suspended sentence if he would pay the money back to his uh, employer and go to therapy. Uh, the restitution payments were steep, however, and Bishop continued to be racked with guilt over his sexual involvement with boys and also his continued sexual involvement with boys and paying them to, to film pornographic scenes was also eating away at his paycheck. Um, so Bishop, what Bishop did, he approached his local Mormon congregation and requested excommunication on the grounds that he had stolen money from his employer. The real reason which Bishop did not tell the church was that he was molesting boys and he thought excommunication would somehow reduce the spiritual punishment he would receive uh, for, for his sins. So he's still, um, he's still like a, he's still devout at this point, but feels that his desire is sort of a sin that's out of control and then rather than be punished for the punished for the, the sin if he's no longer a member of the church then the punishment would be lesser yeah exactly and and that's i think a, a very i don't know i'm not sure about other churches but at least in the mormon church excommunication the idea is it relieves some of the spiritual burden of sin because all of a sudden you're not a member and then you can have time to work on it um what bishop was doing is is unusual though because most people don't request excommunication mm. as a way of somehow getting away from what they're doing. Um, so, or the so you, can be, you can be excommunicated. And then once you've shown to have somehow redeemed yourself or worked through his problems, you can be returned to the church. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you're exactly right that he was, he was really racked and, and, and you know, he believed enough to go of his own volition and request this, hmm. um, which I think is not the case for, for a lot of people. Okay. So he went to the church um, he requested excommunication and then he fled. Um, he moved to downtown Salt Lake City. Uh, he was living in the suburbs. Um, and then he changed his name a few times. Uh, police issued a warrant for his arrest for, for, for skipping probation, uh, but couldn't find him. And Bishop started his life over again. Uh, he registered to mentor young boys as part of the Big Brother program in Salt Lake City, which allowed him to regularly abuse uh, children, which he did off and on for several years. Um, he also began another quote unquote relationship with a new boy named Jess, which lasted over three years. Um, and that had Bishop acting like an adopted father to Jess in public, uh, picking him up, up from school, buying him presents and meeting Jess's friends, some of whom were also sexually exploited by Bishop. Um, so this all led to the first murder on October 14th, 1979. Bishop lured a four-year-old boy named Alonzo Daniels to his house with the promise of free candy. Once there, Bishop tried to sexually assault the boy, but when Alonzo resisted and made noise, Bishop panicked and killed him and then later buried the boy's body in the desert. Uh, the murder was not at all planned and was very traumatic for Bishop, who was deeply disturbed by his actions, but he justified them in his own mind because he did not want to go to prison and be harmed. He had heard that child molesters were often abused by other inmates in prison, and so he felt that he had to kill Alonzo to hide his crime to, to, to save his own skin. Um, Bishop also realized later that the murder was also arousing for him, and so over the next few months, he began to drown puppies as a way of getting the same erotic thrill. Jesus. Yeah. Um, Bishop's four other murders followed a very similar pattern uh, with Bishop luring the child to his home and then sexually assaulting him, murdering him and then burying the body in the desert. Um, however, he spaced out the murders uh, substantially. So he killed a boy named Kim Peterson in 1980, Danny Davis in 1981, and then twice in 1983, uh, two boys named Tro Troy Ward and Graham Cunningham. 
Um, he was interviewed a number, number of times by police who were scouring the neighborhood after each boy went missing, but they weren't able to make the connection. And also Bishop moved around a little bit and changed his name. Um, so he, he, he got away with it. Um, he also continued to molest boys and produce child pornography during this time without killing those victims. Um, not to excuse that, but but that's what happened. Um, it wasn't until this first, fifth murder of, the, of Graham Cunningham that police finally connected the dots. Uh, Bishop was planning to go on vacation to California with Jess and Graham, but he murdered Graham before leaving. Um, and so his proximity to the missing victim made him a natural suspect for investigation. Um, police figured out that Bishop was actually wanted under a different alias for embezzlement. So they arrested him for that and then uh, interrogated Bishop about the murders until he confessed. The next day, Bishop led the police to the bodies of his victims in the desert. And then when searching the apartment, police found a huge file of child pornography that Bishop had made. Bishop was actually killed five, five boys over five years, five boys, five years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bishop was actually tremendously cooperative with the police once he confessed. Um, at times, he would offer very specific details of what the boys were wearing, what exactly happened, as if he was trying to prove to police that it was him. At another point, he expressed gratitude to the officers, saying, I'm glad you caught me because I couldn't stop and I would do it again if I had the chance. He was, at this point, very mentally disturbed, had totally lost control, was living many secret lives and covering it up. Um, house of cards fell apart. Yeah. So all that said, I want to step back a little bit and, hi and highlight that the Bishop murders were just one of many sensational serial killer stories that were monopolizing the American media during the 1980s. Uh, notably, serial killer Ted Bundy had just swept through Utah a few years earlier, and other serial killers, including Jeffrey Dahmer, were also making headline news at the same time. Um, in fact, serial killing hit its peak during the 1980s, uh, with over 200 known killers being active in the U.S. alone. Uh, by comparison, there were only 61 serial killers in the U.S. during the 2000s, so it really was a national oh, obsession. Wow. Yeah, it really was a national obsession of fear and, and dominating the headlines. Um What's more, the 1980s was the peak of, of the so-called stranger danger. So it was the era of poisoned Halloween candy, scary clowns, terrorizing children, uh, hitchhikers being kidnapped and murdered. Um, this was, of course, not the first kind of panic in American history, but fears about strangers were distinct in how they affected politics during the 80s, notably the New Right, uh, which brought Ronald Reagan into office, took this moment to organize against homosexuality, abortion, birth control, sex education, pornography, etc., claiming that all these moral scourges were threatening children, increasing danger, increasing the occurrence of rape and incest, destroying families, and ultimately could bring about the end of American hegemony, which is the worst thing ever. While Reagan failed to meet many of the new rights demands about abortion, instead focusing on his horrific economic agenda, he did conform to pressure from anti-porn advocates and order his attorney general, Edwin Meese, to establish a commission investigating the impact of pornography on American society. This commission held a number of flashy hearings and produced a long report which conflated uh, adult and child pornography, suggested that pornography led to higher rates of incest, rape, and domestic violence, and just generally villainized all forms of pornography, setting porn up as a major threat to American society. Of course, it wasn't only the right that was advocating against pornography, that cause was also taken up by a number of radical feminist activists, uh, but the new right's response to these moral fears was particularly ideological, especially given the fact that many of these hearings and reports ignored all the very real harm that happens to children within the nuclear heterosexual family from parents who abuse their children and get away with it because the family unit is so, so you know, sacred, um, and, and instead focus on the dangers of pornography from strangers and homosexuals and, and things like that. 
In any case, all these different fears about moral dangers congealed into some truly fantastic conspiracy theories at the time. In particular, in the early 80s, there was a national panic about secret underground child sex abuse rings. Um, now, I just want to mention this because it was a real national obsession inspired by this false narrative that school teachers all over the country were somehow conducting satanic sex rituals on the bodies of young children. In Manhattan Beach, California, for example, seven teachers were falsely accused of hundreds of acts of satanic child abuse, including orgies involving animal bones, producing child pornography, children being flown in planes to foreign countries, children being flushed down toilets to secret abuse rooms and tunnels underneath the school, and so on. And, and this was believed by the public. Um, and that trial, it cost over $15 million and lasted seven years and eventually ended up with all charges being dropped because there was no credible evidence. Uh, similarly, in 1984, uh, which was the same year as Arthur Gary Bishop's trial, which we'll get to, um, there was a gay man named Bernard Barron who was working at a daycare in Western Massachusetts. Barron was targeted by parents who were worried that his homosexuality made him a pedophile and danger to their children. Uh, when the daycare chose not to fire Barron, the parents went to the police alleging that their child had been molested by Barron and this set off a wave of other false accusations in which parents, police officers, and social workers coached children into testifying against Barron in a series of increasingly horrific accusations. I've read about this case before and he, he was jailed for like almost 20 years, right? Yeah, 25. And I think he was released and released and died a few years later, just a few years ago. Yeah, it's a really tragic story, yeah. and he and throughout the entire time he insisted upon his his innocence, and then which is why he could never um never get parole, I believe, yeah. because yeah. he used to admit that he was guilty because he wasn't guilty. Yeah, yeah, it's a really tragic story, um, and happening at exactly the same time as as the Bishop case. And so that's what, what makes the Bishop case particularly, particularly interesting. Whereas all of these other child sex abuse accusations would later be proven false after years and years of courtroom drama, or in the case of Barron, 25 years. Um, here, for Bishop, here's a serial killer and a pedophile and a homosexual who is exploiting the big brother system and preying on innocent children in broad daylight, basically. It was everyone's worst nightmare. And unlike the conspiracy theories, which would later be proven false, Bishop's crimes were very real. Moreover, Bishop repeatedly claimed that his addiction to pornography led him to commit his crimes, which made him a poster child for anti-pornography advocates. To this day, I found some, some anti-porn websites just from recently using Bishop as a claim. Uh, if you use pornography, you'll become a, a, a serial killer. Um, uh, after, after Bishop's conviction, for example, Bishop said, uh, quote, I'm a homosexual pedophile convicted of murder and pornography was a determining factor in my downfall. Certain bookstores offered sex education, photographic or art books, which occasionally contained pictures of nude boys. I purchased such books and used them to enhance my masturbatory fantasies. For me, seeing pornography was lighting a fuse on a stick of dynamite. What do you think the reason was that he was sort of raising that? Is that was was that a sort of mitigating factor in order to in order to get a lesser sentence? It it was a mitigating factor, but also he continued to make these statements after he uh, was convicted and and right before he was sentenced. You know, right before he was executed, um, he he I think it was also a, a religious or ethical belief that mm. he was even if he couldn't do anything to resolve the murders that he committed, he could at least raise awareness in the public that this was a threat as far as he saw it. Of yeah. course, he didn't see the thousands of people who use pornography with who don't become serial killers and, yeah. and pedophiles. Um, but from his perspective, that this was a, 
a cause and effect. Um, and I think it really speaks to the fact that he was a product of the narratives in the early 1980s when there was such a, a massive panic about the dangers of homosexuality and sex education and pornography. Um, so it really was an inflammatory moment in American politics. Yeah. And also obviously like his, his, his position, as you say, is entirely anecdotal, but, but as an anecdote, it's extremely powerful for people who want to uh, further that because like the, the sort of moral majority position, because they can say, don't take our word for it. We're not these just, it's not just us, these, these sort of good Christian people, the people who are involved, the people who do it also claim that, that, that this is the cause. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. And, and a lot of the, the articles I read from the time really emphasize the fact that he was an Eagle Scout, an honor student and Mormon missionary. And even someone like him could become corrupted by pornography uh, yeah, and become course, a serious killer. Um, so exactly that. So Arthur Gary Bishop was put on trial in 1984, um, and he confessed to all five murders. Um, he had already led the police to their bodies, so it was it was a clear clear case. His defense attorney argued that he was mentally ill and should only be convicted of manslaughter. Um, the entire case was understandably a scandal in Utah, and Bishop received a lot of death threats during and after the trial. In particular, in during court, uh, one of Bishop's attorneys read a death threat from a 12-year-old girl who said that she would try and kill Bishop if he was ever released from prison. Um, and there was also a $5,000 bounty placed on his head by vigilantes in Utah who, who just really wanted to see him dead. Um, during Bishop's trial, his attorneys invited an expert anti-pornography witness to speak, who's named Dr. Victor Klein. Um, Dr. Klein has gone on to make many other appearances connecting pornography and all kinds of crimes, not just murder. Um, but in the Bishop trial, he blamed pornography with creating Bishop's pedophilic tendencies. And that was a, a, an attempt to, to lessen the, lessen the, the charge. Um, but at the end of the day, Bishop was convicted for all five murders and sentenced to death. He was offered the choice between lethal injection and firing squad, and he chose uh, the injection. While on death row, Bishop became increasingly religious and repentant, stating that he had been misled by Satan and pornography. He read the Book of Mormon cover to cover 10 times. He would put in headphones so he didn't hear the profanity used by other inmates. Um, he was really trying to work on himself, whatever, whatever that meant. Yeah. Um, Bishop also, uh, interestingly, chose to waive his right to appeal and accepted his death sentence. And obviously, this is very un uncommon for inmates on death row who usually and understandably try to prolong the process for as long as possible. But Bishop was not interested in staying alive. Um, the process of waiving one's right to appeal in a capital case like this is actually really complicated. And Bishop had to obtain permission from the court to fire his defense attorneys and hire new ones who would be willing to let him die. So it's a very complicated process. Um, that raises the question, why did Bishop choose to waive his right to appeal? Um, there are likely multiple factors that influence this decision, but part of the decision may be rooted in this uh, folk tradition called blood atonement, which is a very weird belief that some Mormons, and especially Mormons raised in Utah, believe. Um, so I just want to take a quick second to talk about that. As a disclaimer, I personally was raised in California, and I literally never heard of this idea of blood atonement until I was an adult. Uh, but that said, blood atonement is definitely a thing that many Utah st Utahns still believe in, and it still colors the, the criminal justice system in the state. So what is blood atonement? The idea is based on statements by early church leaders who declared that there are sins for which a person cannot receive forgiveness. So forgiveness is impossible without, quote, having their blood spilt upon the ground that the smoke thereof might ascend to heaven as an offering for their sins. 
In other words, God won't forgive you for certain sins like murder unless you spill your own blood, quite literally. Um, this belief has colored a number of executions in Utah. In 1977, for example, another murderer named Gary Gilmore made national headlines when he demanded to be executed by firing squad in Utah, ostensibly to fulfill these blood atonement requirements. At the time, the ACLU and some religious organizations appealed for a stay of execution against Gilmore's own wishes, trying to delay the execution as long as possible with the idea that each execution creases the wheels for the next one. But Gary Gilmore wanted to die to spill his blood as a form of atonement for his crimes. So, yeah, that's, um, I don't know, I don't know, does that exist in, in other sort of, in, in Christian traditions about, it's like, it seems very, so, so basically, uh, in in being put to death, he would, uh, he would like, increase his, would, would, I mean, is that an act of, how do you say it, is that an act of total atonement, or does it just change What's the theology behind that, you know? I don't, the, to be fair, there really isn't a theology behind it. It's just based on statements by these really flamboyant early Mormon leaders. I think it does exist in some other Mormon group or other Christian groups. Um, the, the base idea is in the Bible, the Jews before the birth of Jesus Christ uh, practiced blood sacrifices with animals as a way of atoning for sins. And it's somehow become corrupted by different strains of christianity to mean certain sins require yeah. you to to be i mean s- self-flagellation was a was quite a big part yeah. of sort of uh, mystical yeah. movements um and millenarianism in the in the middle ages i know that and i guess that still continues within catholicism in terms of um you know like rituals which include you know scouring the flesh and things mm-hmm. but but uh I, I wasn't aware that it, it, it led you know it included death yeah yeah, you know, each each group makes their own crazy blood rituals. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, ultimately, as of uh, 2010, uh, blood atonement is officially um, not doctrine, according to the Mormon Church. Um, there was another murderer named Ronnie Lee Gardner who chose to be executed by firing squad in Utah. Um, in 2010, and then the day before he was uh, he was executed, the church finally released a statement saying that it, it was just like emotional oratory used by early church leaders when talking about blood atonement. Um, but before that statement, before 2010, it really wasn't clear what the moment, modern Mormon opinion on the mm-hmm. practice was, and you had various church leaders saying contradictory or vague things about blood atonement. Um, uh, a side note, but you can they, they were still executing people by firing squad up until 2010. Yeah, they still have firing squad. It's I, uh, and it's partially because of this. If if you if you want to somehow atone for your sins by spilling your own blood, you have the option, and it's what a wonderful option that they're giving you. Um, I saw a picture. If you you can look up the picture of the execution room in the Utah State Prison, and there's a table for the lethal injections, and then there's a chair. Uh, for the for the firing squad, it's inside. I thought it would be outside, and so mm. I imagine that when you get shot by multiple bullets, there's a lot of liquid that sprays out of your body, and when you're in a confined space, it can't be pleasant um, for no. observers. So maybe Utah should rethink that. Who knows? Um, I mean, not to get a bit bit gory on this, but but also, I mean, the process of lethal injection is also it's it's not a quick uh, yeah. a quick and pleasant thing. It's a it's it's a it's a form of torture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's not to not to absolve lethal injection or prioritize it, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, Utah's one of the few with 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 both. Um, so anyway, so Arthur Gary Bishop 
apparently had blood atonement on his mind when he was when he waived his right to appeal. Uh, he told the guards he was anxious to die. Um, Bishop actually requested guidance from church leaders about whether he should be executed by firing squad or lethal injection, which are, were his only two options. Um, and if it mattered for his soul, a church leader named Gordon B. Hinckley, who was then a leading apostle of the church and later became president of the church, actually wrote back to say that blood sacrifice uh, was no longer necessary and the method of execution did not matter. Uh, but by that time, it was too late for Bishop and the execution went forward anyway. Um Bishop's final statement was this, quote, by accepting my execution, I do not consider myself a courageous hero or a noble martyr. I am merely accepting my just punishment, though perhaps too little too late, I'm doing the right thing now. I know of God's love, patience, and compassion, and have found comfort in that knowledge. When I kneel before Christ in the next life, having a perfect recollection of all my guilt with a broken heart, I will humbly plead, Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on my soul. And with that, Arthur Gary Bishop was executed by lethal injection at the Utah State Prison on June 10th, 1988. Uh, thanks, David. That's um, that's a, a fascinating and, and really troubling uh, sort of story about his life and, and a, a slice of American life, politics and religion and, and how they intersect. Um, I've got a few questions. Mm -hmm. As you as you were saying, this is 1980s was like a period of like a resurgent interest in uh, or a resurgent role for Christianity within um, within within American politics, uh, and with that, with this sort of new focus on what were then called the same as now the culture wars, and this reintroduction of not just uh, the arguments around abortion, but as you're saying, pornography and homosexuality, that was really like a big part. Um, of building Reagan's coalition, you know, up until people, up until the sort of like late 1970s, uh, the role of uh, the, the also the 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 evangelical role in Christianity, sorry, in uh, politics was largely keep out of it. That was people were sort of told at their churches to not get involved, to focus on uh, higher matters than the, than the worldly, and that really changed in the 70s precisely because of these moral issues uh, and. This new focus then on on influencing uh, politics and this influx of a huge amount of new votes into the system really changed Republican politics. Right? Yeah. Um, was that the same within Mormonism, or had Mormons? I, I kind of in my in my mind, I feel like presumably Mormons have been more involved in politics precisely because of their dominance in the state of Utah specifically. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's accurate. Of, of Mormons were really, you know, had control of. The Utah laws, Utah government, and also to an extent Idaho, Arizona, other places with large Mormon populations. Um, you know, at the time in the seventies, sixties, there weren't a lot of Mormons outside of this this Intermountain West area. Um, but also, like for example, during the ERA debates about the Equal Rights Amendments, Mormons were were prominent anti-feminist activists and, and would bus people around um, to to different conventions to protest. So it 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 was a process during the seventies, not you know for Mormons and for for other evangelical groups of of realizing it didn't just all happen once Reagan ran for for office. It was a very gradual thing. But yeah, definitely Mormons were were part of that and were. Um, again, forgive my ignorance on this, but there is some sort of there is there is a degree of conflict between evangelicals and and Mormons to a degree yeah. about about whether Mormons are Christians. No, yeah, yeah, 
Yeah. No, I mean, I had, I had, I had people in growing up who told me that I was going to, you know, that I wasn't a Christian, that I was going to hell, blah, blah, blah. Things that they just heard in their evangelical churches. And um, if you only live in that tiny community and you don't see past that, it's a very big issue, but. Yeah. So, so bearing that in mind, um, did, did the Mormons in general play, play a role in stuff like the moral majority? So yeah, obviously there were tensions, but I think there were also tensions between evangelicals and Catholics, for example, and so it was uh, people working together despite their deep hatred for each other. Yeah, and it's interesting because like a lot of that seems seems to be sort of, I mean, obviously there's a huge there's a huge uh, there's a huge number of different factors that 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 feed into the moral majority. You know, Mm. Reaganism and and anti-communism being one. the rise of feminism and gay rights movements in the in the sort of late sixties and, and in the seventies, and um, but one thing I, I find quite interesting, I guess, is this perhaps the role of the media that that so much of their focus through the eighties and nineties was on, um, you know, horror horror movies, pornography, uh, what was termed gangster rap at the time, mm-hmm. um, things like this, and yet at the same time, presumably uh, their the movement was itself a result of this increased yeah. amount of sort of access to media, the, 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 the role of, you know, like a VHS recorders and satellite television. And um, uh, actually I, something I read fascinating the other day, which was the role that uh, switching the, the, the increased strength of FM broadcast meant that a lot of radio stations that had been music radio stations switched from AM to FM in the seventies, mm. which freed up a huge amount of AM bandwidth which was then colonized by um, talk radio. Hmm. So actually the growth of the growth of far right talk radio in the U of right wing talk radio in the U S and Christian talk radio, like comes out of this like very specific technological change. Hmm. Um, do you think, um, yeah. Do you think that like Bishop, I mean, you sort of saying that it does seem that he, he, he genuinely believed that he was somehow perverted by, 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 by media. Is is that why he became such a sort of important fi- figure? His case became so important with the serial killers, etc. Yeah, I think. I, well, I think. I think what you said, yeah, is, is really accurate, and, and that's one of the reasons I mentioned of the 1980s was just this moment of serial killing being the thing that everyone was worried about, everyone was talking about. Whereas today, we don't really think about that. I, I, I really couldn't remember the last time I read a story about a serial killer. I'm sure there still are, but I think it's really what was a- fascinating when you say that as well, though, is that, that, that there's such a massive discrepancy in the actual acts. I think in my mind, I'd have probably assumed that it's a more or less constant through history with some deviations for, you know, like economic change or war or things like that. But, the, but you know, that what there's almost four, almost four times as many serial killers then than there were in the last decade is, is a really fascinating fact and you think that's perhaps does hint at the fact that perhaps you know like people's actions are influenced by the media in that way yeah exactly and and i think that's the same thing for you know and i, I don't want to step out line and say like bishop it, you know it's the fault of the society that he grew up in that he became this way i think it absolves him of his his you know ability to choose and and, and other other elements but yeah if you grow up in a society where everyone is telling you you're a, a a pervert and a pedophile someone's going to become a pedophile because that's just what you're being told that that's who you are um i mean yeah yeah to, to, to a degree i mean i guess yeah to a degree yeah it's a, it's a very complicated issue one of the things on that note that i thought was quite interesting is that 
um, the sort of emphasis that you said that they that the Mormons were putting upon conversion, like any forms of con- conversion therapy. Um, you're talking about like this horrific sort of abusive type of you know, quote unquote therapy. It's not it's not a therapy, but um, this attempt to convert people out of their sexuality. Do you th- um, which I think was quite interesting because because conversion therapy does is is quite uh, is in contrast to this model that's, that that people had that had. I guess in the US in the fifties about homosexuality being an inversion and being somehow innate. See, there's something, there's something like unusual there that actually, yeah, like uh, that the inversion therapy, the conversion therapy relies upon this different model, which is that you can be corrupted into homosexuality. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's, and I think that's an underlying feature, you know, when the current LGBT Mormon movement, you know, they, a lot of the times they'll get feedback of saying the Mormon church has always believed this about more about gays. And this is how gays have been. And it's not true. The Mormon church had these wildly divergent things, whereas mm. a contagion versus it was curable versus it's immutable. Um, a lot of confusion. And, and so it really was different people trying different things and all having disagreements about what the real cause of homosexuality was. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's also something to be said there that's interesting with the birth of, of certain currents within the uh, or adjacent to the gay rights movement in the 1970s to do with to do with pedophilia mm. um, emerging because because there wasn't there wasn't really a distinction made quite often between homosexuality and mm. pedophilia. They yeah. were sort of merged into the same crime and they were seen in the same way. So that when in the process of the gay liberation movement looking to to liberate people's attitudes towards homosexuality there was also uh, unfortunately a uh, a sort of pro pedophile movement attached to that which is a very difficult topic to even begin to discuss and, and acknowledge that w- that was existing at the, that same time that that was emerging out of the same milieu that that thankfully has long been discarded as a as a sort of coherent um uh a coherent um ethical position obviously yeah no exactly yeah um uh lastly like i i guess i want to talk about the the nature of of moral panics and uh, maybe if you could sort of talk a little more about that what, one thing you were saying when you were talking about um the sort of satanic ritual abuse panics of the 1980s um really made me think about stuff today to do with QAnon and um uh, pizzagate I don't know if people yeah. if people aren't aware of this. This is uh, this bizarre fantasy about uh, the Democrats and Hillary Clinton being involved in um, a similar form of childhood um, sexual abuse and, and driven by Satanism, uh, and that it was all based around it was supposed to be happening in the basement of a pizza place in Washington D.C. or something like that. Yeah. Um, do you think you, you mentioned in 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 in, uh, in your profile that? that this was believed by the public to a degree do you think do you think uh more so than you know when i think of pizzagate that's clearly in my head something for crack crackpot conspiracy theorists uh and the far right do you think that this was more generally accepted or questioned or you know it wasn't so clearly a conspiracy theory at the time 
Yeah, I, I, I absolutely, and I think I think it's there. I only listed two. There were were many other panics that I, we could talk about for hours. That all kind of happened around the same in the same five years at the beginning of the eighties. Um, and I think the comparison to QAnon is is really accurate. Um, that's what I was thinking about too during the entire thing of. Um, the, you know, how I think we're living through another sex panic of, of people who are projecting their fears about child abuse and, and religion and everything onto these kind of really crazy, crazy things. And it's really difficult when you're in the middle of the sex panic, especially if you believe it, to, to, to see through it. I mentioned the case of Bernard Barron, the gay school aide who spent 25 years in prison um, on false allegations of child sex abuse. Uh, both Bishop and Barron were convicted within a few months of each other and both received multiple death threats from complete strangers who wanted to enact vigilante justice on them, but only one of them was really actually guilty. Um, and so it's understandable that, you know, child sex abuse is a very emotional topic, um, but there's a, a really thin line between seeking justice and wanting some kind of savage revenge um, that I think speaks to today's current rhetoric about, you know, we need to stop child sex abuse in where, you know, wherever it's alleged to be, even if that requires destroying people's lives or American democracy or whatever nonsense QAnon is doing. I think one thing that's worth noting, though, with uh, when we're talking about the reasons for people believing in conspiracies around childhood sexual abuse is partly because um, people are aware that there are discrepancies in terms of like access to ju access to justice, um, that, that the justice system does tr treat people differently, that people in power can actually sometimes get away with perpetrating abuses. Um, and it's very hard for people to navigate through their fears around childhood sexual abuse uh, that can be quite, you know, they're rightly uh, appalled by, uh, and the degree to which it's happening in society, like the extent, the extent of it in society, and the degree to which people get away with it. And so it, it really does sort of um, bring out people's, people's sort of feelings about perhaps the justice system at the same time. Um, and that's why, and the people, people feel that perhaps not enough is being done to to tackle it and that can sort of that that sort of fear can really uh, feed into people the willingness that people have to believe in the idea of a wider a wider conspiracy yeah yeah i think that's true and i think it's also you know when when you want to advocate against child pornography child sex abuse anything protecting children which is a very important goal that 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 should not be ignored but when you're doing that you you filter your your own your these causes through your own biases and so you automatically look at the people who you don't trust who are the other as the criminal and you ignore the own crimes that are happening within kind of your your society and that's the reason i mentioned yeah you know these far right movements really pointed the blame for all all social ills on homosexuals and people who produce pornography and sex workers and people who do sex education mm -hmm. because they didn't want to acknowledge the fact that within the nuclear heterosexual family, there's a lot of abuse and rape and horrible exactly, yeah. maltreatment of children as well. Um, and actually, I think that's just human nature. Yeah. Yeah. And this, the, and, and, and it becomes counterproductive in terms of people then uh, are very willing to identify uh, the, the like childhood sexual abuse with the other, with the, the strange man who lives on yeah. the corner. There's a lot of injustices that happen, and then actually the wider, um, the wider, wider more, more incidents of it are brushed under the carpet because people assume that you know the the married family man who seems to be a loving father in public or, or whatever is not the profile of 
what a what a person who abuses children is whereas in reality most abuse happens within the family home yeah yeah and it's it's also the media like you mentioned of it's more salacious to have a story like arthur gary bishop than some some dad somewhere and then one more thing to just mention is is i think also the case of Arthur Gary Bishop raises this interesting question of how do social movements that are structured around marginalized identities like the LGBT movement deal with people like Arthur Gary Bishop? You know, the popular rhetoric around gays at the time in Utah was gay men are pedophiles and mentally deranged and dangerous. And boom, here's a very public trial of a man who confirms all of these terrible stereotypes. And this is a, a, a narrative that we see frequently happen when activists try to organize around identity politics, marginalized identities, the activists push forward an idealized version of, of what a gay man is or whatever. And then the bigots point to the extreme outlier cases like Arthur Gary Bishop that support their bigotry. And so that's a fundamental weakness of identity politics. There are bad gays, as we've seen over and over with this podcast, um, and there are bad people of all marginalized identities. And so we, as we're organizing and advocating for equality and advocating against harmful stereotypes, it's important to remember that there's always going to be some extreme example that can be used to exaggerate harm to children or to, uh, to, uh, to other, other members of society. Uh, absolutely. And I think, uh, yeah, in saying that, I think the normal way we, we normally round up these show is obviously to, to ask whether this person is um, good or bad or otherwise or gay or otherwise, but I don't think it's appropriate necessarily. I don't think it's really appropriate in this circumstance um, because I think the, the answer is probably clear. Unequivocally bad. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think that there, you know, I know some people feel very uncomfortable identifying a pedophile as homosexual, and there's no evidence of Bishop um, engaging in any kind of adult homosexual relationship, um, but he, he did identify as one, um, and since he's no longer with us, I'm just going to trust him on that. Um, well, thank you, David. Um, if people would like to know more about the case or some of the issues around it regarding um, uh, moral panics, uh, do you have any recommended reading? Um, yeah, so there's not a lot written about Arthur Gary Bishop outside of Utah newspapers from the time, but I would recommend the book Mind of the Devil by by Al Carlisle. Uh, Dr. Carlisle was a psychologist at the Utah State Prison and wrote about interviews with with Bishop and a number a number of other uh, serial killers. Um, Outside that, if you're interested in reading more about Mormonism and gender and homosexuality, I would really highly recommend the book Tabernacles of Clay by Taylor Petrie, it's spelled P-E-T-R-E-Y, um, which is a terrific kind of queer historiography of Mormon gender roles and, and history. Um, and then if you're interested in the more about the child satanic child sex panics of the 80s, I would recommend the book Satan Silence by Debbie Nathan and Michael Snedeker. And then for anti-porn advocacy in the 1970s, 80s, I really like Whitney Strub's book, Perversion for Profit, The Politics of Pornography and the Rise of the New Right. Thank you. And if, um, if people would like to follow you, are you on, uh, are you on social media? Yeah, I'm at David Eichert on Twitter. It's spelled D-A-V-I-D-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. Um, and I'm using that to survive lockdown. <laughs> um, and if you want to follow us, we're at Bad Gays Pod. Um, my name is Hugh Lemmy. Um, I've been joined today by David Eichert. Uh, until next time. Bad. 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 Bad, 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 bad,